0: Well, with that, let's jump into our study. We are in the book of Genesis. And last week, after six messages, we finished chapter one. There's 50 chapters in the book of Genesis, so by my math, we're good for like the next six years. So no new sermon graphics for me to come up with. Uh, I'm, I'm kidding. We're gonna start moving a lot quicker from here on out. The reason chapter one took so long is because To be honest, the subject is kind of a big one. The subject that was the origins of everything, including you and I, and there are people who devote their entire lives to studying the questions that are answered in Genesis 1, so I honestly don't feel bad about taking six messages to talk about that stuff. This week we're going to be in chapter 2, which is really the conclusion of the creation week, the seventh day, and some more details about the creation of man And I know I said, I said I would get through chapter two this week, but I lied. Surprising, approximately none of you who regularly attend this church. So it'll only take two messages though. And so with that, let's jump into Genesis chapter two, verse one. It says, thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished, talking about everything that happened in chapter one. This was the moment in time when God finished creating all the energy in the universe that would ever exist. The first law of thermodynamics tells us that energy and matter cannot be destroyed or created. They can be interchanged, they can change states from energy to matter and matter to energy, but they cannot be created or destroyed. So this moment when God finishes creating the universe, he put in there all the energy and matter that will ever exist in the universe. And the entire universe, we know from the second law of thermodynamics, is like a gigantic clock that is slowly winding down, although that winding down, that entropy, that decay was most likely only introduced after sin entered the world, which is going to take place in Genesis chapter 3, verse 2, and on the seventh day, God ended his work which he had done, and he rested, underline the word rested, on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Verse three, then God blessed, underlined, blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. Now, God didn't need to rest. God never gets tired. It's not like he made the last tree and was like, oh, oh, my back, I gotta sit down for a minute, just for a day. The reason the Lord rested on the seventh day was because he wanted creation week, the first seven days of the universe in which God had created and rested, to be the model for man's week. And we know this because hundreds of years later, God chose a group of people to be His special representatives on the earth, the people of Israel. God called them to follow him and he blessed them. And when they were being led by a man named Moses, God gave Israel something known as the law. The law was a list of commandments, things to do and to not do, and the law revealed very specifically how a person would have to live their whole life in order to meet God's standards. And when you get into the law, which is in the Bible, when you read it, you quickly understand that living up to it is a completely impossible task. We're gonna talk more about that in a few minutes. The most famous part of the law is what's known as the Ten Commandments. And many of you are familiar with this. God meets with Moses on the top of a mountain and God himself writes with his own finger into tablets of stone a list of Ten Commandments. And the fourth commandment says this. It's on your outlines. Underline this first sentence. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it, and then underline, you shall do no work. You, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. And then underline from here to the end. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. That means he sanctified it. Because this is how God did it, God chose to bless the seventh day and sanctify it. So God designates the seventh day of the week, which is Saturday, as the Sabbath. A day when those who follow God must do two things, remember and rest, remember and rest. So write this down on your outlines. God created the Sabbath for his people to remember him and rest from work, those two R's, to remember him and rest from work. God's plan all along had been for man to model his week after the way God arranged the first week of the universe. But make sure you understand this. The Sabbath was not invented when God gave the Ten Commandments. It was created all the way back here in Genesis 2. This is where we're told that God blessed and sanctified the seventh day. That reality, which already existed, was simply revisited and codified. It was made official in the Ten Commandments. And when the Lord codified the Sabbath and the Ten Commandments, it was a mind-blowing idea because nobody in the world was taking a day off at that time. Nobody. In an agrarian society, the idea was simply not an option. People just assumed if we stop working, we won't produce enough food, we won't produce enough materials to trade, we won't have enough to eat, and we'll just die. That's what's going to happen. So it was a big deal, it was a revolutionary idea when the Lord said, trust me, rest, and I'll bless that day of rest, I'll do more through your resting on the Sabbath than you could do by working on the Sabbath. It was one of the distinguishing practices of the people of Israel, one of the things that made them stick out as distinct among the other peoples on the earth. They were those crazy people who took a day off during the week, rested, and inexplicably against all reason and logic saw better, more productive results from their week than all the peoples around them. So what does the Sabbath mean for us today? Well, if you take all of the commandments, all the do's and don'ts that are found in the law that God gave to Moses and the Israelites, you can divide them into two categories, ceremonial laws and moral laws. The ceremonial laws are practices that were designed to help people understand just how holy and perfect God is. And they include things like ceremonial washing, preparing food in a certain way, not eating certain foods, etc. They're all external issues. The moral laws generally have to do with how we treat each other. And they're really a heart issue. See, how I treat you is a heart issue. The way I wash my hands may not be a heart issue, though some of you might disagree but it's not really a heart issue. And these moral laws include things like the commands to not murder, not steal, not commit adultery, etc. When Jesus came to the earth, he lived a perfect life. The only perfect life that's ever been lived. He never sinned, he never broke even a tiny part of the law. And the Bible says that Jesus came to the earth to live the life that we couldn't live. As I said, when you read the law, it hits you very quickly. I can't possibly live up to this. So Jesus came and lived that perfect life, fulfilling every part of the law perfectly in our place, as our substitute, as our representative. And the Bible actually tells us that the whole point of the law being written down and given to the Israelites was so that they and us through the ages would see and understand that we can't possibly live up to God's standards. And you might hear that and go, what? But absolutely, that was the point. For us to understand that the way to God cannot possibly be through us doing good things or being a good person. Because none of us can actually be a good person. We all think we can. But then in the law, God said, really? This is what a good person is, let me show you. And it becomes a really big problem when you're not the one who's allowed to define what a good person is, right? Because if someone says to you, what do you think a good person is? You sort of think of yourself, and then you're like, well, you know, someone who's, I don't know, off the top of my head, 6'3", um, you know, Caucasian, shaved head. Um, just, that's, you know, that's, that sounds like a good person to me. And you end know, up just describing yourself. But when God, the actual authority of what's good and what's evil says, no, this is what is good, and you read it, you go, we got a really, really big problem here. And you might think, that doesn't seem like a fair expectation from God. How can he expect us to meet his standards? But I've shared this before, think about this. In our society, right here in Vancouver, We have laws and we have punishments for those who break them. And how do we come up with those laws? Well those laws are based upon how we as a group have decided that people should live. And we've come up with those laws based on what's realistic to us. So we've all agreed that it's not okay to murder someone. And that's also because we think it's fair to expect that people not murder each other. We feel like we can live up to that standard most of the time of not murdering someone. And so we came up with that law but that's why we don't have a law that it's illegal to lie all the time. Not because we think it's okay, it's because we don't think that we could actually live up to that law. So we lower the standard in that area and we don't make a law about that. My point is that our laws, our standards, and our expectations of behavior are all based on the moral standards that we believe we can live up to. And we hold people to those standards and we have every right to do that as a society. But God is the same way. He has standards and expectations and laws based on what he can live up to and based on who he is. And the problem for us is that he's God and he's perfect. And as we've actually seen here, when he made us, he made us perfect too. So he had every right to say the standard is me. The standard is perfection. That's what the standard is. He has every right to do that. But because of what's going to happen in Genesis chapter 3, we're not perfect anymore. And the problem is that even one failure to meet God's standard means total failure because God is perfect. And you can't be 99% perfect. You're either perfect or you're not. And that's the standard that God has. So the law made it clear that us trying to be good was never gonna be good enough to get us into a relationship with God. That's why we needed Jesus to come and live his life in our place. That's why we needed Jesus to come and fulfill the law in our place, because we couldn't do it. And the Bible tells us that because Jesus has fulfilled all the requirements of the law, we're now free from the ceremonial laws. We're still required to follow the moral laws but we're not required to follow the ceremonial laws. We don't have to wash our hands a certain way as prescribed in the law, but it's still not okay to murder somebody. We're free from the ceremonial laws. We're still obligated to the moral laws. But as we saw right here in Genesis 2, the concept of the Sabbath predates the law by hundreds and hundreds of years. It was given to man long before the law was given to Moses, which means it wasn't given as a ceremonial law. It was given as a moral law, which means we are still to observe a Sabbath. The Apostle Paul wrote a couple of things about the Sabbath. Let me read them to you, they're on your outlines. In his letter to the Church of the Romans, Paul wrote, one person esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day, observe it to the Lord, and he who does not observe the day, to the Lord he does not observe it. Here's the idea. The ceremonial part of the Sabbath was doing it on a Saturday. The moral part of the Sabbath was setting aside one day of the week as a Sabbath day. And what Paul is saying is there's freedom. You can have your Sabbath on Saturday, you can have it on Sunday, you can have it on Wednesday as long as you do the things that you're supposed to do on a Sabbath, which is remember the Lord and rest. And what Paul is saying is if you have a conviction from the Holy Spirit that your Sabbath has to be Saturday, then he says, your Sabbath has to be Saturday. If you don't have that conviction, that's fine. You're free from the ceremonial obligations of the law, but you still need to have a Sabbath. Are you tracking with me on where we're at? Okay, good. This is why in his letter to the Colossians, Paul would write, also on your outlines, so let no one judge you in food or drink regarding a festival or a new moon. Don't you hate those people who are constantly judging you about new moons, me too, man. Or Sabbaths, underlying Sabbaths. So the point there is that he says, don't let anyone judge you about Sabbaths. So don't let anyone judge you about the day that you celebrate the Sabbath on. So write this down. We're still called to observe a Sabbath because it is a moral law that predates the Ten Commandments. It's a moral law that predates the Ten Commandments. When the church started, when it was born in Acts chapter two, the church was born in the city of Jerusalem, which is a Jewish city, and so it was really hard for them to have their church meetings at the same time that everyone was going to temple and synagogue. They couldn't really find anywhere to meet, so they began meeting on Sundays because that's when there were facilities available, and it was the day that Jesus rose from the dead. The Sabbath was also given before sin entered the world, which is important because it means that God designed man to rest one day a week even back when man didn't have to work. Before the fall ever happened, God still said he wanted man to remember him and rest on one day a week which all points to the truth that the Sabbath is still a valid biblical command to this day. It's a command, it's not an option for the believer, which means, and I always have to say this so that we don't miss what I'm actually saying here, which means that we're in sin when we don't observe the Sabbath. It means we're in sin because it's a command. And I don't say that to be legalistic, I say it because something is wrong when the church takes something that the Bible says is a command and over the course of time begins to treat it like it's an option. And we've done that with the Sabbath as well. We've just said, well, well, that's an option. You need to rest-ish. You need to remember the Lord kinda, sorta, you know. You can sneak some work in there as well, but it's a command, it's not a suggestion. And you might want me to stand up here and say, but there's grace, just do as you feel led, but, but I can't do that because I don't have the authority to revise the Bible and say, I know it says this, but here's the thing, it's 2018, and I think God was being a little bit judgy, as though you could ever accuse God of being judgy, who has full right to do that, right? I don't have the authority to revise what's in the Bible, and I do have an obligation to let you know what's in the Bible. The Sabbath is not a salvation issue. You're not gonna go to hell because you don't observe the Sabbath. And when we sin, there is forgiveness. You accidentally do some work, you're forgiven. But we do need to recognize the reality that it's a command in scripture. Now as a point of interest, any guesses on what the penalty was for being caught working on the Sabbath? Come on, what's always the penalty in the Old Testament? Death, right, when you don't know, just like in kids' church, Jesus is always the answer. When I ask you what the penalty was under the law for anything, just guess death. You're gonna be right like 99% of the time. So do you think God was serious when he said to observe the Sabbath? I think he was pretty serious. I guess they would just murder them the next day because they couldn't actually work. Uh, It was the Sabbath, I I just realized that right now as I was thinking about it. But you know what? It is amazing how people who don't have time to rest suddenly find it when they're under the threat of death. When the choices are rest or die, people become pretty passionate about resting. And you know, we see this all the time, don't we? we? We see that person, that friend we know, that person at work who's going way too hard. They're a workaholic and they can't slow down because there's too much to do. Then they crash and burn and get sick. And suddenly they're in their bed for months. And suddenly they found all the time in the world to rest. Because they're resting or they're going to die. Now in the law, God also commanded Israel to observe a Sabbath year. Every seventh year, they weren't supposed to plant any crops. Instead, they were just supposed to wait and harvest whatever the ground produced on its own in that seventh year. And the Lord promised to bless them with an extra abundant harvest if they would do that and let the land rest. For a 490-year stretch, Israel said, you know what? I think we're gonna get better production from the land if we skip the whole Sabbath year thing and just do what we normally do, plant crops and harvest them. And do I think the Lord took offense to that? Yeah, yeah, I do. Because the Lord showed up after 490 years and he said, listen, you owe me 70 Sabbath years. So here's how I'm gonna get them. I'm gonna have the Babylonians come in, they're gonna conquer you, they're gonna take you off to Babylon in exile and you won't be able to work and you're gonna rest as prisoners in Babylon for 70 years because you owe me. He takes the Sabbath seriously and I wanna suggest that all of us at a minimum risk serious damage if we don't incorporate rest into the regular rhythm of our life. You're not gonna be stoned to death You won't lose your salvation, but you will lose. You will lose. There's a wise saying that says fatigue makes cowards of us all. And it's wise because it's true. Nobody is immune to the weakening effects of fatigue. When you're tired, you'll fall for things you'd never normally fall for. You'll be tempted by things you wouldn't normally be tempted by. And you'll cave into temptations that you wouldn't normally cave to. Samson, likely the physically strongest man who ever lived, laid his head on Delilah's lap because he was weary. He was weary. He was tired. Wiped out. And he ended up blind and in chains. And I believe that there are many people making destructive choices in their lives right now and reaping the terrible results of those choices simply because they're tired. They're tired. They're worn out. And it's much harder to resist temptation when you're tired. And if we would just obey the Lord's command to take a Sabbath rest once a week, we would find ourselves refreshed and strengthened. And if you don't observe a Sabbath, you're not only risking disaster from fatigue, but you're missing out on blessings from God. There's no expiration date on what the Bible says in Genesis 2, that God has blessed and he sanctified the Sabbath. In other words, God is saying, I'm doing something through this whole idea of the Sabbath day. You can be a part of it or not, but I'm still doing it. I'm still blessing it. I'm still sanctifying it. Well, I don't need to observe the Sabbath. I'm not tired. Was God tired? Is that why He rested? He wasn't tired. Was Adam tired when He was in the garden, not working, just picking fruit from a tree and eating it and everything being amazing? He wasn't tired. It's not about being tired. God made us and he knows how we're designed to function. When the one who made us says, you need to rest once a week, we should listen. We should listen. It's not meant to be a legalistic thing. It's meant to be a blessing. Jesus was once walking through a grain field on the Sabbath and his disciples were picking out some heads of grain as they walked by and chewing on them. And the religious leaders, the Pharisees said, hey, that's work. And Jesus said, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, Jesus said, guys, I created the Sabbath to bless people. I didn't create it to give people more things to do or make life more difficult for them. But let's get to the real heart of the issue. Let's talk about the reason why most Christians don't observe a real Sabbath. We believe that we can accomplish more by doing things our way instead of God's way. That's the real issue why most of us don't observe a Sabbath. We believe we can accomplish more by doing things our way instead of God's way. We believe that the extra work we would get in, the extra dollars we could earn would benefit us more than taking a Sabbath and doing things God's way. We believe that that running around to our kids' activities will benefit them more than resting and remembering the Lord and insisting that they participate in that. We believe that doing things our way will be more productive than doing things the Lord's way. When we really get down to the heart of the matter, it's not a scheduling issue. It's a faith issue. And most of the time, we don't have the faith to believe that more is gonna get accomplished by doing things God's way and resting. So if you haven't already, write this down. Most believers don't practice a Sabbath because we believe we can accomplish more by doing things our way instead of God's way. We believe we can accomplish more. And you know what I'm gonna say next? We're wrong, we're wrong. God can do more through our obedience than we can through our disobedience. Let me say that again. God can do more through our obedience than we can through our disobedience. And these concepts are all over the Bible, all over the Bible. Tithing, we think I'm gonna be ruined if I give up 10% of my income. And God says, no, you won't. In fact, I'll bless you above and beyond that 10%. When God told the Israelites to give the land a Sabbath year every seventh year and just harvest what the land produced on its own, they thought, we'll starve to death. God said, no, you won't. In fact, I'll make sure that that is the single most productive year of the seven-year cycle you ever have, and I'll give you more food than you can possibly use during that year. It's a faith issue. It all comes down to whether or not we actually believe that what God says in his word is true. Do we actually believe that he will do what he says he will do? That he will actually bless the Sabbath, that he has actually sanctified it, and he'll do more if we rest than we could if we worked. Do we actually believe that? That's always the real issue, do we believe God? The purpose of the Sabbath is to remember the Lord and to rest. And the truth is that sooner or later, it's gonna come down to the simple issue of priorities. You're gonna to have to choose between taking a Sabbath or your kids' activities. You're gonna to have to choose between a Sabbath and earning some more money. You're gonna to have to choose between a Sabbath and knocking some things off the chores list and getting ahead. You're gonna to have to decide what you believe is gonna benefit you and your family the most, the blessings of God or whatever else is competing for your Sabbath. And you know where my vote is. Choose the blessings of God. Choose the blessings of God. And I know I'm talking a lot today about the Sabbath, but the the more I dug into this subject this week, the more I discovered how it really relates to some massive issues like faith and priorities and our strength to resist temptation and all kinds of huge issues. And as I was just meditating on this subject, I was struck by another reason I believe that God was and is so passionate about the Sabbath. I believe it's because it points to the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done for us. As we mentioned earlier, Jesus lived the perfect life that we could not live and he did it in our place. He did it on our behalf. He fulfilled every part of the law perfectly. Even though Jesus lived that perfect life on our behalf, there was still the issue of all of our failures to deal with because every time we failed to meet any part of the law, We were choosing our way over God's way. And in doing that, in that moment, we were choosing to be our own God rather than allowing God to be our God because we put our will above his. And that's what sin is. That's what the word means, choosing to be your own God. And it's the most serious crime in the universe. In our world, a crime becomes even more heinous when it's committed against an innocent person person that's why we find crimes against children so disturbing so consider this God is perfect he's completely innocent completely without sin he's never done anything wrong and so what we do when we sin is spit in the face of a perfectly innocent God we reject God we reject our creator who's also the almighty God of the universe It's the most heinous, serious crime in the universe when we sin in any small way. There's nothing on earth that compares to the severity and seriousness and heinousness, heinity, heinousness of sinning against God. It's the most serious crime in the universe. And one of the realities of love is that love requires justice. Love requires things to be made right. Imagine if someone murdered seven kids over the course of a year and was then caught and at his trial he said, here's the thing, your honor, I'm really sorry. I regret my actions. And the judge said, okay, understand. You're free to go. None of us would go, isn't it great when mercy wins? Isn't it wonderful when grace wins? We'd all be outraged. Why? Because even though we love grace, even though we love mercy, Love requires justice, and we've all committed that most serious crime in the universe. We've all rejected God. We've all spat in his face a million times over in a million different ways, and this next part never ceases to amaze me. No matter how many times I I preach this or read this or think about this, knowing that that was the situation for each of us, that we were all in that hopeless position, I still cannot get over what happened next in the gospel that Jesus said, not only will I live a perfect life in your place, but I will take the punishment for your sins in your place. Justice must be done, love demands it, but let justice be done to me instead of to you. That's incredible, that's incredible, and I hope that that never sounds normal to you because it's amazing. And that punishment was handed out on the cross. Jesus was beaten, tortured, then murdered in the most excruciating way possible in your place, in my place. But after three days, he rose from the dead. How? Because death can only rule and reign where sin rules and reigns. And even though Jesus took our place on the cross, he himself was completely innocent. So sin and death had no claim to him. He lived the perfect life in your place. He died in your place so that justice could be done for your sins, and he rose again because death has no power without sin. And what's your part in all of this? What's my part in all of this? To believe in what Jesus has done for us. To believe in it. That's it. That's it. In his letter to the Ephesian church, the apostle Paul said it like this. He said, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. In other words, you've been saved because Jesus has done everything. There's no part of it that you can even take credit for. All you can say is God made me aware of it and I believed it. Everything that Jesus has done together is called the work of salvation. It's a gift, That's what the gospel is. Your sins are forgiven. You can have a relationship with the God who created you and loved you enough to die for you, the God who knows why you're here and what you were put on this planet to do. Jesus did it all, and and as he hung on the cross in our place, he cried out, it is finished. It's finished. And what we're asked to do is simply rest in the finished work of Jesus on our behalf. That's our part. Rest in the finished work of Jesus. That's the gospel. And it's why the whole concept of the Sabbath is meant to feel familiar to us. Why it's meant to resonate with our spirits. Our whole faith is built on the idea of resting in what Jesus has done. That he has moved us from death to life and all we have done is rest in and receive and believe that truth. The Sabbath is God saying, I want you to take one day a week and be intentional about resting in me, physically, spiritually, emotionally, in every way. If you understand the gospel, if you really get it, then you'll understand the Sabbath. You'll understand it. Write this down. God can do more through us resting in him than we can by working on our own. He can do more through us resting in him than we can by working on our own. And that's why Jesus called out to the people and said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. And I wonder how many of us are wondering what else we need to do when what we need to do most is rest in the Lord and learn how to do that properly. If you're not taking a Sabbath as a regular part of your week, start doing it. It will change your life and understand this, your life and all the parts of your life do not care that you're here right now or that you in part of yourself want to align to the word of God and have a Sabbath. All those parts of your life, they don't care. They're not gonna say, oh, we better fall into line and free up one of these seven days so that the calendar's free. That's not going to happen. You're going to need to remove things from your calendar and make the choice to prioritize obeying the Lord and taking a Sabbath over those things. You're gonna have to cut some things out. They're not gonna bow down before your desire to have a Sabbath. You're gonna have to make them bow down in obedience so that you can have a Sabbath. So do it and be blessed. The concept is these two things, remembering the Lord, remembering your creator and resting. So if your Sabbath is Sunday, don't spend your morning doing chores unless you enjoy them. If you enjoy them, that's great. If you're one of those weird people that is like mowing your lawn and the symmetry is just like firing the endorphins as you mow those lines, that's great. I would rather learn the harp There's nothing I would rather do less than mow the lawn. So it's work for me. It might not be work for you. Maybe you go watch your kid's sports game and you love it. But if it's raining and you're sitting outside and you're miserable, you're not resting. You've got to figure out how to rest, how to be honest about it, and how to remember the Lord. If you take your Sabbath, come to church. That's going to help you remember the Lord. If you take your Sabbath during the week, Figure out what you're gonna do to remember the Lord. Are you gonna take communion at home, take it as a family, do a family devotion, take an hour of that day to just be in the word or to to read something that's gonna remind you about the Lord? Think about those things and believe that as you rest in obedience to the Lord, you're gonna find that your week is more productive than it is when you say, you know what, I don't have time to obey the Lord right now. That time is never gonna free itself up. It's never gonna happen. You have to choose to make it a priority. And that completes the creation week overview in Genesis one and two, and now we continue to verse four, and we're gonna zoom in on the creation of man. So chapter one was really an overview. Chapter two now goes back for a little bit and zooms in on that moment in day six when God created man. Verse four says, this is the history of the heavens and the earth, "...when they were created in the day that the Lord made the earth and the heavens, before any plant of the field was in the earth, and before any herb of the field had grown." And now tune in here. It says, "...for the Lord had not caused it to rain on the earth, and there was no man to till the ground. But a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground." These verses are the reason that some Bible scholars speculate there may not have ever been rain as we know it before the great flood of Noah. These verses seem to point to some sort of different water cycle being present to the one that we have now, one in which water came up from the earth as a mist and provided all the water that the plants needed to live. In our study of Genesis 1, we looked at some verses that seem to point to there being some sort of water canopy around the earth before the great flood of Noah, a layer in the earth's atmosphere made of water that would have created a greenhouse-type effect on the earth, resulting in things like a common climate everywhere on the globe, which is why we find things like tropical vegetation fossils in the North Pole today. And we're gonna talk about this more when we reach the flood in Genesis, but for now, I just wanted to draw your attention to this while we're here. Verse seven, and the Lord formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. This is the moment the Lord not only breathes physical life into Adam but breathes the spirit into Adam. It's the moment he makes him alive not only physically but eternally. And what's interesting is that this phrase doesn't have to be taken poetically. It may also be that. But the fact is we know today that scientifically all of the ingredients that make up your body can be found in the ground. Most of you is carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, calcium, and a whole bunch of trace elements, all of which can be found literally in the ground, in the dust. However, even if you had all the ingredients to create a human being, you still couldn't make it alive and conscious with a living eternal spirit. God breathed that into humanity. He breathed life into existence. I love Psalm 103. I put it on your outlines. It says, as a father pities his children, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. I like that. It's being literal. He remembers that we are dust. He's like, I remember how I put you together. I know how frail you are. He knows what I'm made of, he knows what you're made of, and he's compassionate towards us the way a loving father is compassionate towards his kids because he remembers they're just kids. God knows I'm just dust, he remembers. Verse eight, the Lord planted a garden eastward in Eden and there he put the man whom he had formed. So now notice this, the garden where Adam and Eve were placed, we are told is on the eastward side of a region known as Eden. So Eden seems to refer to the region, not the garden. Eden was the region, and the garden was along the eastern side of this region known as Eden, which means that the region of Eden was, for the most part, west of the garden. Now, it's widely accepted among biblical scholars and archaeologists that the garden was likely located somewhere in the fertile crescent of ancient Mesopotamia, modern-day Iraq, Iran, that sort of area. So if you know your geography, what's west of ancient Mesopotamia? Israel, Israel. And while we know that the great flood would reshape the whole earth dramatically, all of the globe's terrain, the fact would seem to remain that Eden was, in fact, located along the edge of Israel, Which means that all the way back when the world was made, there was already this specific region of the earth that God has claimed as his own, as being special. The region we know today is Israel. And even though the terrain may have changed, God kept that as his chosen place on the planet. So, why is Israel such a big deal geographically? Because it's the most significant real estate on the planet. It's GP, it's God's property. That's why it's such a big deal. Verse nine, and out of the ground the Lord made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. This verse reveals the heart of God. We've talked about this before. God created man to know him, to enjoy him, and to participate in his work. God created us to bless us, and yet there's so many people who seem to believe that God went to all this trouble creating the universe and the earth, creating us so that he could ruin our lives. That's not why he made you. He made you to bless you. And verse nine shows us that because he could have made vegetation as nothing. It could have just been black cubes that were on the ground. And God could have said, eat one of those every day. He'll give you all the nutrients you need. It'll be fine. But he doesn't do that. He made the world beautiful to look at. Not because it needed to be, but because he wanted to bless us because that's who he is. He made food that was Delicious! It doesn't taste like cardboard. I mean, unless you're like vegan or something, then you're doing that to yourself. But that's not God's plan. Uh, it's not gonna make it online. He, God didn't just make things functional. He made them to bless us. It's because that's who God is. That's what he's like. Then it goes on and says, the tree of life was also in the middle of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We're gonna hear more about that specific tree in just a few minutes and we'll talk about it then. We're actually it'll probably be in our next message as well. Verse ten Now a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it parted and became four riverheads. The name of the first is the Pishon, it is the one which skirts the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bedelium and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one which goes around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Hedekel. It is the one which goes toward the east of Assyria. The fourth river is the Euphrates. Now in 2 Peter 3.6, the apostle Peter wrote, the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. And as I mentioned earlier, the whole world's terrain was dramatically altered by the great flood, These places, these rivers don't exist today, at least not in any way that resembles the way they did then. Even though we have a Euphrates, it's not the Euphrates they would have had back then, which is why nobody should read this and then pull out a map and go on some Indiana Jones-style escapade expecting to find the site of the ancient Garden of Eden. Eden doesn't exist anymore. The ground was washed away, completely reformed. There's no secret, hidden, magic place that's full of gold where people live uh, forever, on this earth anyway. Anyway. There's no point looking for it. It doesn't exist anymore. Verse 15, Then the Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. In the original Hebrew, that last phrase actually reads, In the day that you eat of it, dying you shall surely die. And I can't help noticing that God didn't say, in the day that you eat of it, I shall kill you. What God tells Adam is that death will come for him as a natural consequence if he chooses to eat from this tree. And that changes everything because God is doing everything he can to warn Adam about the consequences of disobedience. And he's doing everything he can to protect Adam from making a disastrous decision. This would be like me telling my kids, listen, if you go out and try to have a nerf battle in the middle of Highway 1, you shall surely die. Nobody would accuse me of being unloving or legalistic or threatening because I'm warning my kids about the consequences of certain actions they may take. But Jeff, why did God put the tree in the garden at all? Why create the risk? Why create the temptation? God created the tree in order to create free will. You see, free will cannot exist without the option to choose. The tree provided an option for Adam. He could choose to obey God or he could choose to do his own thing and reject God by eating the fruit of the tree. And free will is 100% necessary if love is going to exist because if love is not a choice, It's meaningless. It's either programming or when love is forced, it's rape. And the Bible tells us that that God is love and love requires a free will choice. So God gave man choice because God wants to have a loving relationship with you and I. It wouldn't mean anything if you were single and I said, great news, I've created a robot that is designed to love you and you would say, does it have free will? No, it can only love you. It's like a dog. You can really just treat it like crap and it'll still come back for more hugs and, and, and still love you. You'd go, well, it, it actually doesn't sound that great. It's kind of meaningless. Or if I said, here's this person, I've got a spouse for you and they're designed to love you. And well, they don't actually love you per se, but if they don't act like they love you in a convincing way, uh, we will beat and torture them every evening for you. Just to help you have a good marriage. That wouldn't be love either. None of us would want that. It would be meaningless. There has to be free will in order for there to be love. So write this down. Love requires free will because it has to be a choice. It has to be a choice. God didn't need robots, God didn't need a population to force to love Him. And to this day, God has continued to give man sovereignty, free will, the choice to enter into a loving relationship with him or not. Even though that relationship with God came at the price of the life of Jesus, we still get to choose. He still gives us the choice. He won't force himself upon us. He won't program us to love him. We get to choose. He gives us his word, the Bible, so that we have all the information he needs. He's explained to us that On our own, we are destined for death. If we reject Jesus and everything he did in our place, then we're choosing to be judged for our own sins rather than letting Jesus be judged in our place. God has told us in his word that if we reject Jesus, we will surely die physically and then for all eternity as our spirits live forever separated from God in complete darkness. God loves us. And so he warns us and he gives us a choice just like he gave Adam. And if you've never made the choice to give your life to Jesus, the choice to believe in everything he's done for you, the choice to enter into a relationship with the God who created you and loves you so much that he died for you, I want to encourage you, make that choice today. Don't contemplate, don't deliberate, just do it today. You'll have the chance to do that in just a moment. For the rest of us, let's just be bottom line practical. Let's make sure we're actually practicing a Sabbath every week. Let's make sure we're practicing a Sabbath. You know, as a pastor, if someone comes to me and says, I feel just overwhelmed and stressed out and tired, the first thing I got to ask is, are you you taking a Sabbath as the word says? Because the truth is if they're saying, "Well, well, no, I'm not, it doesn't really matter. As a pastor and a fellow believer, I can't be like, well, here's some life hacks to help with your scheduling. I'm sure this is better than the blessing of the almighty sovereign God. Tricks to get your day started off right. It's the same as as a Christian who's having a financial challenge and refuses to tithe. "There's, There's nothing I can do. You're disobeying God in this area and then wondering why things aren't clicking in this area. If you're tired, if you're exhausted, if there never seems to be enough time, if you're drained and you're not taking a Sabbath, that's the thing you need to do. It's the thing you need to do. Rest and trust the Lord. Take that step of faith. And let's make sure we're keeping our hearts in that place of faith where our lives prove that we actually believe what God says is true. Next week, we're gonna be looking at God's design for marriage and family. It's gonna be good. And then we'll be getting into the reasons why the world is so messed up today. So, so don't miss that. It's gonna be next week. With that, would you bow your head and close your eyes? Let's, let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word. And, and, and thank you that you desire to bless us. And that's the whole point of the Sabbath, that we would be blessed, that we would experience your blessings. And not only that, that we would experience your blessings as we rest. And as we remember you, that we would experience the God who works on our behalf, the same God who worked salvation on our behalf. Lord, what a blessing it is that your plan and design is that every week we would experience the blessing of specifically resting in you, in what you've done, and what you wanna do in our lives. Help us to have the faith to practice the Sabbath, Lord. And I pray for those who are wrestling with it right now that you would give them the strength just to prioritize the Sabbath over all the other things competing for their attention. I pray for everyone who takes an intentional Sabbath for the first time or for the first time in a long time this coming week. Lord, would you just bless them and revive them and strengthen them. May even their sleep improve. May they feel rested Lord, we confess and acknowledge that that you're the one who did the complete work of salvation. You did it all. And all we can do is rest in your finished work. So help us to rest in you spiritually, emotionally, and even physically, Lord.